Good evening. Welcome to New Hope Church. My name is Chad. Ushers, could you please prepare for the tithes and offering? You know, this past weekend, we, are, we had our garden spruce up day. And we're out in the garden and we're cleaning it up, trimming the trees. And it was amazing that with the people we had and over a short amount of time, there's this transformation that took place where everything was just crowded and overgrown and little by little it started clearing up and cleaning up and giving space for the plants to grow. And, you know, a couple of the guys were a little further down on this one area that was filled with actually a lot of rubbish trees and bushes. And as they kind of went through the back and walked around, they, they found underneath there a mountain apple tree that was loaded with fruit. And from the outside, you'd look at it and you wouldn't see anything, but they went inside and it was just fruit all over the, the tree. They found a couple of lychee trees back there and some other plants. And, you know, it was, um, it's so amazing that from the outside, you know, we don't, we'll see one thing, but as they got into it, they got to see all the fruit. And, you know, Pastor Pauline shared with me that uh, way back, a lot of the families here planted the fruit trees or a lot of the plants around our campus and they planted with their families, and it was for the next generation, and it was for um, to invest in a church. And here we are today that we get to bless literally the fruit of what they planted. Huh. And you know, it reminds me of when we give of our tithes and offerings. You know, we give unto the Lord wholeheartedly because of what He will take and what He will do with it to further His kingdom. We don't know what it's like when we plant the seeds, but He He waters it, He grows it, and people be, are blessed by it. So if you're visiting for the first time, we want to welcome you to our service. Please don't feel obligated to give. If you have a home church, please continue to tithe at your home church. And this is your home church. Let's be uh, our hearts and pray. So Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for this church, Lord. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, for the investment that when we give unto you, Lord, that you take that. And out of that comes fruit that is useful and that blesses others as well as ourselves. So, Lord, we pray tonight that you would take this offering and use it for, to further your kingdom and so that people would know your love. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Chad. Well, good evening. And if you're watching live, welcome to you also. Um, in a couple of weeks... I get to celebrate my grandson's 15th birthday. I know, right? I texted his mom. I said, how, exactly how old is Micah? And she said, how old do you think he is? I said, well, 13. And she goes, no. And I go, oh, my gosh. But, you know, we celebrate birthdays because it's like it's a stage. They're growing, right? Like at 15, he's not doing what he did as a baby or as a 5-year-old or a 10-year-old. We celebrate that he's growing and he's changing and he's moving forward. And it's the same thing with our spiritual growth. We want to constantly be growing, and we want to be moving forward. So tonight, we're continuing our series, Spiritual Disciplines. And that our hope is that at the end of this series, each one of us will take just one more step towards reaching our full potential and growing in our maturity as followers of Christ. So last week, Pastor Sheldon spoke about being committed to God, to hearing God. And he told us that we are disciples of Jesus 24-7. And if we're disciples of Jesus 24-7, then we need to be hearing him 24-7. It's not just Sunday. It's not just Wednesday. It's not just when we do devotions. But it's all day, every single day. And if we're going to be that committed to hearing God, then we need to put some work into that commitment. Well, tonight I'm going to continue, and we're going to talk about the power of baptism in our lives. Now, 
Some of you were with us um, a few weeks ago, and we celebrated down at Coconut Island as 25 people acted on their decision. That's right, 25. We can, let's thank God for that. And they made a decision to publicly declare their commitment to Jesus through water baptism. And it was wonderful. I mean, I was thrilled. Every time I saw someone go in the water, I just got more excited. But let me ask you something. Have you ever thought through what baptism means to each of us as a follower of Jesus? Like if somebody were to come up to you and ask you, so what is baptism? What does it mean to you? Do you think you'd be able to answer? And then if you did answer, would you be confident with your answer? Because baptism has to be more than a ritual. It's got to be more than our next step. And it's something that even Jesus made sure that he did. See, Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, he wrote that while John the Baptist, now he's called John the Baptist because he baptized, not because he was Baptist, but what he was baptizing. And while he was in the water baptizing, Jesus approached him to be baptized. And Matthew wrote this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, John felt inadequate to baptize Jesus, but Jesus insisted that it be done to fulfill all righteousness. And I was thinking, what, is that, what does that mean? So what does it mean that Jesus wanted to fulfill all righteousness? Well, Paul was speaking to the church in Ephesus, and in Acts 19, he says, John's baptism called for repentance from sin. But John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. See, Jesus didn't need to repent of sin. He had, didn't have any. However, by being baptized, Jesus identified himself with all of us. Author and pastor John MacDonald, MacArthur explained it this way. Jesus came into the world to identify with men. And to identify with men is to identify with sin. He could not achieve righteousness for mankind if he did not identify with mankind's sin. So it doesn't mean that Jesus sinned. It means that he identified and acknowledged our sin nature in order for him to accomplish God's will. The other thing that Jesus did by being baptized by John was it was a public announcement of the beginning of his ministry. Paul said that the people were to, um, Paul said that the people were to believe in the one who would come later, and he meant Jesus. John's baptism of Jesus announced him as the one who would meet God's righteous requirement for sin. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we're part of a denomination called Foursquare. And as part of the Foursquare denomination, we believe and we teach that baptism is an outward sign of a work that the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you. So what that means is when you say yes and you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit starts working in you. And as he's working in you, he calls you to be baptized, but nobody sees what's going on inside. But when you go and be baptized, now you're making this declaration. God's doing some cleansing. He's doing some right-making inside of me. And in this baptism, I'm publicly declaring what Jesus is doing. Baptism is the beginning of a lifestyle of discipleship. 
Now, I remember when I first recommitted my life to Jesus, man, I couldn't keep it inside of me. Like anybody who heard me, anybody who saw me, it was Jesus this, Jesus that, the Bible this. I was just so excited. And then when the opportunity to be baptized arose, it seemed like the right thing to do because it was validating what was happening inside of me. But let me tell you, when I got baptized all those years ago, that wasn't the end of something that the Holy Spirit was doing inside of me. He's still working. He's still drawing me to make little steps of obedience every single day. And he's also drawing you. Now, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he appeared to the disciples several times. And the final time he appeared, he was taken up into heaven. But before he did, he gave us one final assignment. And we call that the Great Commission. And here's what, he, here's what um, the Bible says in Matthew. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what Jesus said is we need to make disciples. Now a disciple is a follower of a student or a teacher. So basically, we um, teach people, we talk to them, and we do it in such a way that they begin to follow Jesus. And then after that, they're baptized. And then after that, we disciple them. We teach them to obey Jesus' commands. Now, that's a great pattern for how to reach others. But you know what I realized the other day? I should apply that that exact same principle to my own spiritual walk with Jesus. First, I need to believe. I need to become a disciple. I need to follow. Then I get baptized. And then we begin a lifestyle of learning. See, baptism is a defining moment in our relationship with Jesus because it's a declaration of our commitment to pursue being discipled on a consistent basis. And I believe that we can continue to grow and be discipled daily if we'll do three things. So if you're taking notes or you're filling in your app, you can write this down. Position yourself to learn. Position yourself to learn. Now, I moved to Eva Beach from the mainland in my senior year of high school. Can you imagine that? My senior year. And I kind of had a bit of a chip on my shoulder because if I'd stayed in the mainland, I had a group of friends that I could do my senior year with. But now, I moved to Eva Beach. I didn't know anybody And it's my senior year, and so who am I going to do senior year with? Not only that, but when I came to the school, I tried to sign up for some classes, and they didn't even have the classes that I wanted to continue. So then I started with the, oh, on the mainland, we're better, because they don't even have these classes. So kind of a bad attitude. Well, I only needed my math class, which I hated, and my English class, which I loved, to graduate. So what I did is I took math, I took literature, and then I filled the rest of my classes with electives. And then I went to school on the first day. And then the first couple of weeks, I made a couple of friends. And in photography class, I met my husband. And so I'm going to class. And after maybe a week or two, I'm having lunch with my friends, not my husband, I'm having lunch with my friends. And they decide they don't want to go to class. And I'm thinking, I've never cut before. I've never skipped class. But... I don't need the next class. And I'd rather go to the beach. 
So yeah, I'll do that. So the rest of the year, I went to math, which I hated, I still hate. I went to my literature class, which I love, and if you ask anybody, I love to read, I'm still doing that, and I made sure I went to photography. But every other class, I didn't go to. And you know what happened at the end of the year? I did graduate because I had the classes I needed, but in those other classes, I didn't learn a thing because I wasn't there. So if you're not there, you can't learn. And when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, if we don't position ourselves in a place to learn, we won't learn anything. The first century religious leaders had a very similar attitude to the one that I carried. They thought they knew everything. So they were obnoxious, they were arrogant, they were hard-hearted, and they were prideful. They saw themselves as teachers, and then they put themselves ahead of the people. And there's an account in the book of John chapter 9 that records what happened when Jesus heals a man who was blind from the day he was born. And when the people realized that this man who had been blind from birth could see, they asked him, what happened? How is it that you can see? And so the man says, well, this man named Jesus made clay, and he put it on my eyes, that he told me to go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and I did, and I can see. Well, this was an amazing thing. So they brought him to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees said, how is it that you can see? And he said the same thing. Well, the man named Jesus made clay, and he put it on my eye, and he told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and I did, and now I can see. But the Pharisees looked at him and said, no, this is the Sabbath, and on the Sabbath, you don't work. This man's working on the Sabbath, so this man can't be of God. What he's doing can't be holy. So how is it that you can see? And they kept badgering him and badgering him, and finally, he'd had it. And in John chapter 9, 30 to 33, this is, he says this. Well, this is an amazing thing, the man says. You don't know where he's from? Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. And throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. So if this person were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. And then the Pharisees revealed their unteachable spirit and their hardened heart. And they said, you... You were born entirely in sin. And are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out. Are you trying to teach us? See, that one question revealed their heart and explains why they were unable to recognize that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament promised. And if anyone should have recognized that, it should have been the Pharisees because they knew the Scriptures. One time when they were arguing with Jesus, they said to him, you break the Sabbath. You, make, you call God your father. You make yourself equal to him. And here's what Jesus said. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. See, the Pharisees knew the word of God. They had every opportunity to be useful in the advancing of the kingdom of God. Because they were unteachable, they missed out. On the other hand, one of those hated men in Jericho positioned himself in a place to learn, and he became changed as a result. 
So if you have your Bibles or your app, we're going to go to Luke chapter 19. And we'll just read a little bit. So there's a tax collector in Jericho named Zacchaeus, and nobody liked him. And it says here, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see, though, to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was short of stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be the guest with a man who is a sinner. And then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, 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 I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save what was lost. Now, I know that today, we're not exactly fond of the IRS. <clears throat> but in the first century Israel, people's feelings toward tax collectors were so much worse than what we feel. See, what happened was wealthy Jews could bid for the position of becoming a tax collector. And then when they got that position, the way they became richer was when they taxed the people, they would add to that a surplus. And they could add whatever amount they wanted. And they were able to do whatever they wanted to receive that. And so the people in Israel hated them. They hated them because of what they were doing to them, but they also hated them because they were associating with the Romans who had, was ruling over Israel, and the Israelites hated that also. Not only did they hate tax collectors, but Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was the main one, so he was especially hated. And here it is. Jesus is coming to town, and he wants to see him. And he can't get through the crowd, and he's short, and he can't see over people. So he's got a couple of choices to make. He could just give up. Okay, that's it. I can't see him. It is what it is. He could try to push through the crowd and try to fit through, but it just wasn't happening. So he thought, and he knew, I need to see Jesus. I have to figure out how I'm going to do this. How am I going to make this happen? And the Bible says he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. So Zacchaeus knew which way he was going and decided, if I need to see Jesus, I need to put myself in a place to see him. So he climbed a sycamore tree. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down. See, Zacchaeus put himself in a place where Jesus would see him. He pursued discipleship, and he positioned himself to learn. And just like Zacchaeus, we need to make the same types of decisions to pursue discipleship if we want to grow and learn. We can't be like the Pharisees. We can never grab onto the idea that I know everything, that I've arrived, and that I no longer need to learn. 
that's the attitude the Pharisees had, and that attitude blinded them to the very work of God that was happening right in front of their eyes. Cannot be like that. We can never believe that we've arrived. We've got to be like Zacchaeus. We've got to see what it takes. How, what do I need to do? How do I put myself in position to learn? And the second thing is, you need to put away offense. You can't learn if you're offended. Now, remember in the account of the blind man that received sight? The Pharisees were offended that the man thought that they could learn from him. And so they questioned him. Who are you to try to teach us? Now, you don't need to raise your hand, but how many times have you said something similar? Who does she think she is? I've been coming to church all this time, and now she wants to tell me what to do? Whoa, 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 I saw that person. I know what they were doing last night. How come they're up there singing? I know what kind of lifestyle they live. What makes them think they can teach me? See, we do that all the time. And Jesus experienced the very same type of judgment. One time he went home after traveling about and teaching, and when he arrived in his own hometown, the people didn't receive him. I love the way the message um, translates their thought process. It says, we've known him since he was a kid. He's the carpenter's son. We know his mother, Mary. We know his brothers, James and Joseph, Simon and Judas. All his sisters are here. Who does he think he is? And it says, they got their noses all out of joint. But Jesus said, a prophet is taken for granted in his hometown and his family. And then he didn't do many miracles there because of their hostile indifference. Now, it wasn't that Jesus lacked the power or the ability to teach. The problem was their noses were bent out of shape because they thought they knew who Jesus was and how dare he try to teach them. And in the same way, we often hinder our own discipleship and growth by letting our opinions, our judgments, or our offenses deafen us to the truth because we don't like or respect the vessel. Now, a couple of months ago, I finished a um, video Bible study that someone invited me to do. And that thing really slapped me upside the head. And it caused me to change. It caused me to realize that I'd gotten too comfortable, that maybe I'd gotten too judgmental. There are things in my life that needed to be addressed. And I think I really grew as a result of doing that study. You can ask my kids and my husband. I think I grew, but... But I almost missed that opportunity to be discipled to grow. And here's the reason why. I'd been to a conference a few years back, and the author of that study was a speaker at that conference. And I'm sitting in that conference, and I want to learn. And then as they're up there talking, that speaker said something that was, I thought was inappropriate. And then they went on to make these inappropriate jokes. And I'm sitting there thinking, whoa, you're up there and you're talking like that? Like, there's all these new Christians here, and like you're, you're saying that kind of stuff? And then I got offended. And then that offense sat in my heart. And then it took residence. And then pretty soon, when books by this author would come out, even though I'd read them before, I just passed them by. And it wasn't a decision I made. I didn't say, I'm no longer going to read books by this person. It was an offense that was sitting in my heart. And I couldn't receive from that person anymore. But I couldn't get out of this other study that I was invited, invited to do. I, like, I, didn't, I couldn't, I, unless I lied. So I went ahead and did the study, and I'm glad that I did. Because I learned things that I might not have learned. 
And I think like, man, I could have missed out on that because I let offense color my thought process and color whether I could receive receive from somebody. Now, are you making the same mistake? Are you letting your own ideas and judgments hinder or stop you from growing? You know, before Paul had an encounter with Jesus, he was probably one of the chief um, attackers of the church. And he would go, and he'd just get new believers, and he'd, and he'd bring them for trial. They stoned people at his feet. And he had a, letters from these Pharisees, and he was going into town, and he was going to grab more. And on his way, Jesus stops him. And Jesus changes the trajectory of his life. And instead of destroying this church, Paul was now going to be one of the most useful people in building the very church that he tried to destroy. But while Jesus was speaking to Paul, and he gave him the instructions, I want you to go into the town, I want you to stay at this house, and you wait. There's going to be a man who comes to you, and he's going to pray over you. And then Jesus went and he spoke to Ananias. Ananias says, whoa, crazy. Do you know who this guy is? Do you know what he's doing? I've heard about him. He's arresting people. He's throwing them before judges to be judged for following you. I don't want to pray for him. He says this to God. He says, but Lord, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Ananias was offended by Paul's actions. And he did not want to go and pray for him. I've heard about him. This guy's bad news. But God didn't listen. He told Ananias, I want you to do this. So Ananias obeyed God and he went and prayed for Paul. And then Paul went on to plant churches, he went on to build leaders, he went on to spread the gospel, and he's written about two-thirds of the New Testament. Now imagine if Ananias would have let his offense get in the way of God's plan. Now I have no doubt God would have called someone else to the task. But Ananias would have missed out on an opportunity to be even a small part of what God was accomplishing. And before we allow our, in, our offenses to hinder us from growing, it would be very wise for us to remember that God accomplishes his purpose in spite of our thoughts, our judgments, and our offenses. If we want to grow or be part of what he's doing, then we need to put them away. Um, Paul says this, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. See, we look at somebody, we get offended, and we think they're weak, they're wise, or whatever we think, but God's using them. And if we want to grow, we've got to put those offenses away. God doesn't work the way that we think he should. He has his own plans, he has his own way. And if we're going to pursue being discipled, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us our judgments, it's going to cost us our offenses. It's going to cost us comfort as we position ourselves to be, to be learning. And finally, it's going to cost us our pride because we're going to have to learn to start small. And you can fill that in in the last blank. Start small. Now, how many of you guys watched this year's Super Bowl? Right? Before the first 
quarter was even finished, I already knew who was going to win. I already knew. Because here's what happened. I was watching, and the Patriots had more experience, older players and all that. And so all they needed to do was move the ball. Move the ball. Move, Ten yards at a time, five yards at a time, one yard at a time, two yards. They didn't care. They just moved the ball. And they would get down there. They couldn't get in because the Rams' defense would stop them. But they were moving the ball up and down that field. When the Rams got the ball, Jared Goff and those guys, they were kind of inexperienced. They hadn't, this team hadn't been there before. And so they wanted to make the big plays, 20 yards, 30 yards, and they couldn't make them. So they never really moved the ball. And throughout the game, I'm watching, and I already know, because the defense is eventually going to wear down. And all the Patriots did was move the ball, just a little bit at a time, move the ball, move the ball. And that won the game. And I think we can learn from that. Sometimes we try to do big things for God and for the kingdom when all we really need to do is move the ball. You hear to say here that everything we do is discipleship. Everything is an opportunity to learn and grow. Whether you're wiping tables, whether you're standing at the door and greeting, whether you're holding babies in the nursery, if you're singing up here, if you're serving food in the kitchen, everything that we do is an opportunity to grow. It's part of rubbing shoulders with people. It puts you in a classroom. There's nothing so small, there's nothing so minuscule that you can't learn from it. There's value in each and everything that we do for God, no matter how big or small it is. And whatever we do, if we do it for the glory of God, we're in a classroom setting. It's an opportunity for growth. It's a way to pursue discipleship. Because it's in the serving that you're going to bump up against people. And we're going to have to practice forgiveness and humility. We're going to have to practice um, doing things that we don't want to do. It'll sharpen our skills. It's in serving that we sharpen our skills, and it's as we serve that we learn. Now, many of us know the story of David and Goliath. David was just a young man, and he dared to stand against a giant who was taunting the, Israel, the Israelite army. He went to go see his brothers and how they were doing in camp, and he witnesses Goliath come out, and he's taunting them while the army is hiding behind rocks and bushes. And David looks at that, and he got so angry. And he says, who is this guy that dares to come out and defy the armies of the living God? Well, this got the men's attention. So he's brought to King Saul. And King Saul takes one look at David, and he says, this kid can't do this. He's just a kid. How is this kid going to come out and fight this giant who's been taunting this army day and night for 40 days. How is this kid going to do it? The prophet Samuel documents the conversation. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. And Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. 
this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Now, where do you think David got his giant slaying skills? There was no giant killing schools in Israel at that time. He didn't read a book that says 12 steps to slaying your giant. When he was out in the fields, he wasn't planning how one day he was going to go and fight a giant. What he did was he went out in the field, and day by day, he obeyed his father. Day by day, he did his tasks, and he learned. He simply obeyed, went out to shepherd the sheep, and in doing, though, doing that, he sharpened the skills he needed to fight Goliath in the everyday task of shepherding his family's sheep. It was in this task that God sharpened and honed David's skills. He started small, and he was faithful in what he did. And that's the place to start. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah recorded some visions that the Lord had shown him. And in one of the visions, he wrote, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand, Zerubbabel. See, God rejoiced just because the work was done. He rejoiced because he picked up the tool. So let me encourage you. Just pick up a tool. Just start serving. And by willing to start small, God is going to rejoice. You can close your Bibles, put away your notes. You know, sometimes people come up to me and they'll say, when did you start thinking about being a pastor? How did you plan to do that? And I always say the same thing. I didn't. I didn't set my sights on being a pastor. I didn't even set my sights on being on staff. I came to church here, and I simply started. They needed help in the nursery. And I went in the nursery, and I held babies. And that's all we need to do. We don't have to start big. We just need to start small and be faithful. And then we pursue discipleship by just beginning to serve. And let me tell you, when you do that, you position yourself to learn. You position yourself to get rid of offenses because I tell you, I guarantee you right now, if you serve, you're going to get offended. And you're going to practice forgiveness. And you're going to practice saying, I'm sorry. But when you start small, you position yourself to learn. We're going to be discipled. In his book, Sifted, Pastor Wayne Cordero said, I used to pray, I'm going to live for God. Now I pray, God, come live through me. I used to pray, I'm going to work for God. Now I pray, God, come do your work through me. I used to pray, I'm going to serve God. And now I pray, God, please come and serve through me. I think that's a great place to start as we pursue being discipled. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for calling us and inviting us to be part of your kingdom. Open our eyes 
so that we can see what you're doing. Please don't let us be so prideful, so offended that we can't learn. Help us to humble ourselves and put us in a position where we're serving and able to learn. And help us be willing to start small. As we do, Lord God, continue to grow us and move us forward and move us step-by-step closer to the potential that you have in us. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.